Uh, turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3. And um, how many of you have ever gotten into a project and as you're in the middle of it you think, you know what, I think I bit off a little bit more than I can chew. Um, I think sometimes I always tend to do that when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God is inexhaustible. We, we can't even, no matter how deep we dig into the Word of God, uh, we cannot adequately uh, exhaust the truths of God's Word. And uh, here in Habakkuk, uh, we're going to be mainly looking at chapter 3, and uh, we're going to delay reading the chapter for a few minutes, and I'm just going to give you a brief, hopefully, hopefully a brief uh, background of, of what Habakkuk uh, faced. Um, the, the prophet Habakkuk uh, prophesied, uh, there is some, some uh, disagreement about the time in which he prophesied, but most historians would estimate that he prophesied from anywhere from 620 B.C. to 609 B.C. Uh, to give you a little background, uh, the prophets of God were sent as a, as a messenger from God, most oftentimes and every time, I would, I would definitely say to deliver the message that God had to give to the people. They were uh, messengers, prophets sent from the Lord to speak the word of God to the people of God. It's very interesting that uh, the book of Habakkuk is somewhat of an anomaly in the, the prophetic books in that God never clearly gives him a specific message to deliver to the people, uh, nor do we see Habakkuk preaching to the people. We can look at books like Jeremiah where God clearly says, go forth and give the message that I have for you to give. They're not going to listen to you, but I want you to preach this message anyway. We don't find this specific message given to Habakkuk to deliver to the people of God. Uh, Most people would agree that uh, Habakkuk prophesied toward the end of the Assyrian reign. uh, When Assyria was finally coming to its close and Babylon was rising up as the next great world power and empire... And a lot of people would say that his uh, prophecy or the book of Habakkuk was written right around the time uh, after the death of Josiah. Uh, as we looking into the Old Testament, we see um, sort of a pattern, how that often a, a king that, that followed after God and, and uh, wanted all of the people to follow after God was often followed by a king who forsook God. And we see uh, Hezekiah, of course, a, a wonderful king who followed after the Lord, followed by Manasseh. Uh, and Ammon, uh, and then, thankfully, through the, the grace of God, followed by King Josiah. So we see a, a, a righteous king, Hezekiah, followed by Manasseh and Ammon, both wicked kings, and then God restores and gives grace to his people in giving them King Josiah, who followed after God, who destroyed the high places, who destroyed the altars, and commanded all the people should worship the one true God. Uh, following the death of Josiah... A, a king by the name of Jehoahaz uh, came to power, uh, and his reign only lasted for three months, and he was killed. Uh, but it's very interesting to, to see that in, in this context, God gives uh, this message to Habakkuk. Uh, and we see the, the book of Habakkuk is, is somewhat of a vision that Habakkuk, a burden that Habakkuk saw. Uh, but it's in this time, in the reign, uh, most people believe, of Jehoahaz, uh, a very wicked king. Uh, one described in Jeremiah 22 and verse 17 as one who had a heart and eyes for dishonest gain, uh, for shedding innocent blood, for oppression and violence. In this context, God speaks to Habakkuk, and he gives Habakkuk uh, a message that is not very easily received. Uh, 
Uh, and we'll start off and we'll briefly kind of give an overview of the book of Habakkuk and then we'll dive into chapter 3. Uh, Habakkuk kind of breaks down into uh, two different parts. One, the first part we see is a, a kind of a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and between God. The first part that we find in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 is found in verse number 1 through verse number 4. And in these verses, Habakkuk cries out to God, and uh, just bears his soul and his heart out to the Lord. And he comes before God with a grievance, and his grievance is this, God, why aren't you hearing me? How long will it be till you'll hear me, till you'll answer me? Uh, the, the, the wickedness is, is great in the land, the justice does not go forth, it is perverted. We see that the righteous are oppressed by the wicked. God, what is going on? I think in a lot of uh, ways we can easily find ourselves in Habakkuk's position. When we see injustices uh, done in this world, we often call out to God and we say, God, why? Why are you not hearing? Why are you not intervening? How can you stand by and see the wickedness that is so pervasive in this world? So that is the grievance that Habakkuk brings before God. He says, God, why why aren't you hearing me? Why are you standing by while the wicked oppress the righteous, while justice is perverted. And God's answer is, is very interesting, found in um, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse number 5 and uh, down through verse number 11. God replies to Habakkuk. Uh, it's, a, it's a reply that Habakkuk no doubt was not expecting. And uh, note, I'll just uh, briefly uh, cover a couple of verses here. Verse 5 of Habakkuk 1, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, Because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe if you were told. God replies to me, he says, Habakkuk, little do you realize and recognize this, but I'm already working. I'm already uh, behind the scenes. You can't see what I'm doing. You can understand exactly what I'm doing, but I am working out a plan and a purpose in this nation. So what was the purpose and plan of God? God's intention, as we see there in in verse number 5 and following, was to raise up a people against Judah. Verse number 6, he says, For for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Uh, Chaldea was an area just, I guess, southeast, it would be, of uh, the nation of Babylon. Um, Ironically, it's the place where Abraham was from, from Ur of the Chaldees. It's very interesting that having been brought out of Earl of the Chaldees, that God is now judging his people uh, from a people based in that very location. Um, But he's saying, I'm doing a work. I'm bringing judgment against Judah for the wickedness here that you're complaining about. You're bringing to me this this grievance, and I'm already working it, but I'm going to judge Judah. And uh, by the hand of the Chaldeans... He goes on in verse 7 and following to describe the Chaldeans, how they are mighty, how they are swift, their horsemen and their horses and all of these things. Their might and power is immeasurable. And he says, this is what I'm doing, Habakkuk. I'm going to judge my people. Habakkuk then thinks to himself in verse number 12 through uh, chapter 2 and verse number 1, replies to the Lord, and his second grievance is brought before God. He says, God, how... How can you use such a wicked people to judge people more righteous than they are? I don't understand, God, how how you're going to use the wickedness of the Chaldeans to bring judgment upon your people. And he goes on to to describe to God uh, all of the things that they will do and coming and and taking over these nations uh, and 
God, how, how can you rightly uh, deem it proper for the Chaldeans, those wicked people, to judge your people? And uh, the, the last question that he poses to God in verse 17 of chapter 1 is, will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? When is this wickedness and this evil going to end? Will there ever be an end? You know, as the uh, prophet Habakkuk, having seen the, the reign of Assyria and now seeing the end of Assyria and then the rise of the Babylon Empire, I'm, I'm sure Habakkuk was wondering, is there ever going to be an end to the evil in the world? Is there ever going to be an end to the wickedness and the cruelty, the murder, the, uh, the perdition, all of these things that were taking place in his day? When is it going to end? You know, we can look around our world and, and often come up with the same question. God, is, is there no moment when you will judge? And we know, of course, that one day there will be a perfect judge, Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick and the dead, everyone that is appearing. But Habakkuk, I'm sure, as you can probably guess, was, he was pretty down. He was a little upset. God, when, when will there be an end to all this? And God replies to him in, in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse number 2 and going down through verse number 20. And the essence of what God told Habakkuk in that passage, and I don't, I, we don't have time to delve into it, unfortunately. Uh, but what God essentially told him is that I will judge those people in my time. Uh, he, he starts off and he, he starts talking about uh, how that uh, uh, people that are greedy and they can't, they can't seem to get enough, their eyes never satisfied, they go and they, they conquer this people and then, oh, there's another people to conquer, they go and conquer them, that eventually those who they plundered will turn around and plunder them. Those who they oppressed will turn around and become their oppressors. Uh, and, and God reiterates in the mind of Habakkuk that he is in control. He is the one that will eventually judge the Chaldeans. And in, in saying this, he, there's five woes that are pronounced, uh, presumably upon the, uh, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, found in verse 6 and verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and also verse 19. So it's in this passage, uh, this, this foretelling of judgment, God's raising of the Chaldeans to come and to judge his people. Habakkuk not fully understanding, and obviously, I think many of us could be guilty of this as well, not agreeing with God. God, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, it's often we find in the Bible how, uh, how people have tried to correct the Lord. Uh, when Jesus was foretelling his death, uh, Peter, of course, the one to always put his foot in his mouth, spoke up and said, no, no, it's not going to come nigh you. No, this is going to happen. You don't understand. But God has a purpose and a plan that he is working out in this world. And Habakkuk, we see kind of a, a tale of two prophets here in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapters 2, we see Habakkuk pleading before God and, and questioning God and, and saying, God, I don't know why you're doing this or why you're choosing these people to judge your people. And then in chapter 3, we see a, a prophet who has resigned himself to the will and to the purpose of God. This uh, judgment that God would bring on uh, Judah was not a judgment to be taken lightly. It was not a temporary financial setback. This was not a, uh, a plague, so to speak, that was in and after a year or two was gone. This was to be a years-long oppression of the people of God by the, by the Babylonians. 
This was to be a time of suffering, a time of death, a time of famine, a time of war. And it, it often comes to my mind, and as I was reading this passage, it, it struck me, how do we respond to the Lord in times of our trial, in times of our temptation, in times of our suffering? Suffering is a universal experience. There is not a family or individual in this room today that will not, at some point in their life, suffer. Whether it be a sickness in your family, whether it be a death of a loved one, whether it be financial hardship, whether it be loss of a job, loss of a home, uh, no food to put on the table. Uh, there are, we could spend all day just discussing the different types of suffering that we could go through and that historically the people of God have gone through. There are several reasons for, for suffering. We see here God specifically tells Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm going to bring judgment against Judah. And no doubt suffering can come as a result of the judgment of God. There's a, a vast difference. We know that as believers that at the ultimate final judgment, uh, we will not be under the wrath of God. Because Christ has already propitiated, he's satisfied the wrath of Almighty God on our behalf. And I'm so thankful because of that. But here, temporally speaking, we can endure trials and hardships that are given by the hand of God as a consequence for sin or as judgment for sin in the life of the believer. Not only that, but through no fault of our own, sometimes we will find judgment or sorrows or suffering coming into our life as a result of another. One thing that's very interesting to see is how that, in, uh, historically speaking, many righteous have suffered with the wicked when God brings his judgment to bear on the wicked. No doubt Habakkuk, as a righteous prophet before God, would indeed suffer during the Chaldean invasion. So the question we have today is, how, how did Habakkuk eventually and finally respond to the message that he had received from God, this message about suffering, about oppression, about war? There's a few different things I, I want us to notice in chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, the entirety of chapter 3 this afternoon. Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're going to start verse number 1 and read down through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses? On your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice 
it lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows. At the radiance of your gleaming spear, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. And notice very closely verse 16 down through verse 19. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me to walk on high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you, and God, we beg of you during this hour, Lord, that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, there's no doubt in my mind, but there are situations, Lord, uh, represented here in this room, individuals and families that are going through a time of suffering, a time of sorrow, a time of temptation and trials. But God, we know that you are greater than our trials. Lord, you are sovereign over our trials. And God, as Habakkuk finally recognized and realized in his own life, I pray that you'd help us to acknowledge your presence even in the midst of suffering and trials in our life. Use your word, I pray. Lord, may you guard every word that I say. May what is said here today, may it be edifying and may it build up your body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's uh, several things that we see Habakkuk finally, when he comes to the point in his life and in this passage where he, he trusts God. There's a distinction between his reaction in the first two chapters and his final reaction in the third chapter. And so I really want to emphasize and to hone in on what, what it is Habakkuk did when he eventually recognized the sovereignty of God over the trials and situations that would surely come his way. The first thing we find Habakkuk doing in Habakkuk chapter 3 is we find Habakkuk praying. Notice that chapter 3 starts right out, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiginoth. There are some people that think that Habakkuk was not actually the one who penned Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, Habakkuk chapter 3, we see, is a prayer of Habakkuk, and noting from the last part of the passage, we see that it was also a song. Uh, many times, and many people believe that this was a song that the people of God sang uh, to him in rejoicing. We see a similar song recounting the goodness and the power of God sung after uh, God brings uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. 
on the other side of the Red Sea and how they sang a song to God praising him for his wondrous works. But the first thing that we see uh, Habakkuk doing after he hears and after he finally comes to terms with what God has given him, we see him praying. Notice in verse 1 and 2, he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk, first of all, prayed. I think this is often the last thing that we do when we get into trials and temptations and suffering in our life. I I think the the, the knee-jerk reaction we have when we have a financial setback or when we we have things come into our life that take us by surprise is we often figure out the first thing that we can do to help ourselves. Uh, And uh, many people would quote that famous verse that is not found in Scripture, God helps those who help themselves. Um, we ought to, to strive to, to see a, a conclusion, a solution to the problems that we face. But the first thing that we should do when we are faced with trials and suffering and temptation is to cast all of it upon God. Habakkuk here came before the Lord, and after hearing, he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, or I have heard your report. Lord, what you've told me is a great and somber thing to come to terms with and to bear. I've heard this and I have been afraid. But even in the judgment and justice that God was going to display, Habakkuk begged, even in judgment, for the mercy of God. He says, God, in wrath, remember mercy. It was not uncommon for Old Testament prophets to offer supplication before God, on behalf of the people that they were prophesying against many times. And the same is true here in Habakkuk. No doubt God uh, giving this, this vision, this message to Habakkuk about the judgment that was to come, uh, no doubt this was to be a message that he would have to take to Judah and to explain to them and to, to call them to repent. But even in the midst of that, he says, Lord, revive thy work. Revive your work in the midst of these years. Make it known, make your power, make your work known in these difficult times of trials. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Psalm 85, 6 says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice? It's very easy to look at times in our lives, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a few minutes, but to look at times in our lives when things are going well, when the hand of God is perfectly evident, when we can almost see God working in the circumstances of our lives. And it's very easy in those times to, to say, God, I trust you. When, when God provides that job out of nowhere for you, or when God gives you that extra money that you needed to pay your rent, or when God heals you or a family member or raises them off a deathbed of sickness, it's easy to say, God, thank you for what you're doing. I trust you. But it's much more difficult in times where we can't see the hand of God, where we can't sense his presence, when it seems like God has abandoned us. As the psalmist in in, uh, Psalm 118 uh, this morning, as we looked in Sunday school, was saying, he said, darkness is my acquaintance. I can't see any light. It's all hopeless and it's dark. In those times, it's even more difficult to say, God, I trust you. But here, Habakkuk was calling out to the Lord. He says, Lord, in your wrath, in these times of darkness, in these times of judgment, God, be merciful. Be merciful to us. 
we see Habakkuk praying. The second thing that we see Habakkuk doing is recalling the goodness and the power of God. Recalling the goodness and the power of God. We're, we're not going to, to dive into each one of these statements that we find in verse 2 through verse number 15. We'll summarize them briefly. In verse number uh, 3 and 4 of Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, we see the, the power and the glory of God. It says, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Often, many people think referring to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, where God visibly appeared in a cloud that covered the mount, and how Moses received the law at the hand of God. Uh, what a display of the power and the majesty of God. We see, the, first of all, the power and glory of God in verse 3 and 4. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. I think even recognizing that God can be seen in his creation, the things that are visible, the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, according to Romans chapter 1. So we see the glory of God. Uh, the second thing that we find in verse number 5, uh, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. Uh, as, as we even read in, in, uh, in our, our reading this morning in, uh, in our worship we can often see when, when the Israelites were in a difficult situation, they often referred to the Exodus as, as almost a prime example of the hand of God delivering and the power and the might of God being shown on the behalf of his people. The same thing is shown here in Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk recalls and he says, pestilence. Before him goes pestilence and plagues come after him. No doubt recalling the plagues that came upon Egypt, the ten plagues, and eventually, as we, as we read in Exodus this morning, resulting in the death of the firstborn. He says, God, you are powerful, you are wondrous, you are mighty. Before you goes pestilence and plagues come after him. Uh, so we see the, the plagues of Egypt are mentioned here in verse 6 and 7. Uh, he talks about the dividing of Canaan. Uh, verse 6, he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. And then he talks about the tents of Cushan and the, the tent curtains of the Midianites trembling. And no doubt we could look through uh, the book of Joshua uh, and see the mighty conquest that God led on behalf of his people. Time and time and time again, coming and fighting for them. We think of the battle that Gideon, there even the Midianites mentioned here in verse number 6, the battle that Gideon uh, fought in, him and his 300 men, was a miraculous victory. Could have been wrought by no human means, but God did that on behalf of his people. Uh, look at also in verse number 8. We see the deliverance of the people uh, through the Red Sea, kind of skipping back a little bit in history. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode upon your horses on your chariots of salvation? Uh, we think of the parting of the Red Sea, how that God's people crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. What a miraculous event. And Moses, just before the parting of the Red Sea, what did he say? He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, the deliverance of God. This is also brought forward in verse number 15. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. And here Habakkuk continuing uh, to recall the goodness and the graciousness, the mercy of God that can be seen in his past acts. 
Continuing on, uh, notice verse number uh, 9 through verse number 15. There are many different uh, phrases and things here that are, are meant to bring to mind a kind of a visual of the power and the might of God in fighting for his people. The Bible says here, your bow was made bare. Um, so we, we went uh, shooting the other day. Hope, hope none of you hold that against me. Went uh, shooting with Joe and Kayla and Heather and I did, and uh, we are, we're all alive. That's a good thing. Um, it's really interesting. You see a lot of people come up to the shooting range, and they have their, their big, long gun cases. They've got all their things packaged a certain way, and all their, their weapons are in their cases. They're, they're almost made ready. But you know, when you get up on that firing line, what happens? The guns don't stay in the cases, right? Hopefully. You take them out, though it's made bare. by In this kind of visual that Habakkuk is giving, your bow was made bare. Here, you showed all of the people your might, your, your majestic uh, might in war and battle. Your bow was made bare. Also, it refers to his spear, the gleaming spear of God. Showing that God, it was God that fought for his people. If you look in Joshua chapter 1, one of the things that just astounds me, and obviously it can astound me because I can look back and see what God did, but when God told Joshua, he says, Joshua, I I want you to get up, go over this Jordan, you and all of the people into the land that I do give to them. It's been given. It is done because I will fight for you. I will fight your battles. I will show myself strong on your behalf. And Habakkuk here is, is recalling how that God fought for his people. Uh, not only that, we see uh, in verse number 11, God's power over creation. It says, sun and moon stood in their places. We can think of that battle where Moses was up on the mountain and Joshua and Caleb were there and holding up uh, the hands of Moses and how that God caused the sun to stand in its place to win that victory over their enemies. Again, referring to the power, to the might of God on their behalf. And I think one of the greatest things that we can do when faced in times of trial, in times of uh, temptation and suffering, is to look back and see, God has never failed me, and God will never fail me. The, uh, when we, we lived in Connecticut for a, a short time when I was in college, and um, Heather was expecting our first child, and she was having some complications, and we honestly had no idea what they were. She was having severe pain, and um, if anyone had know Heather very well, she, she takes pain extremely well. She is, she's a tough cookie. Um, so we went into the hospital. They tried to figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. Uh, we, over about a week period, we were in several different hospitals trying to diagnose what was going on, and they couldn't. And one morning I was working at Dunkin' Donuts. I was working overnight. I was making all the donuts and muffins and croissants. Amen. Um, Baptists can get excited about that stuff, you know. Um, and I remember, never forget, it was 2.30 in the morning. Um, and I got a call on my cell phone from Heather. So I took it and, and she was sobbing on the phone. And just the, the most severe of pain. She's like, this is the worst it's ever been. I have no idea what's going on. And there are times when we come to the, to the end of ourselves... When we recognize that there is nothing that I can add to this situation, there's nothing in my power that I can do, no task I can perform, we'd done everything we knew to do. The doctors had done all the tests they knew to do. 
And there's a time when we come into our lives at, at, at that place where we just have to say, God, I can't do this. I can't do this for myself. But God, you've never failed me before. And I know that you're not going to fail me now. And uh, I remember I, I just sat down. There was somebody at the drive-thru wanting a coffee or something at 2.30 in the morning. I'm like, they can wait a minute. It's all good. And I, I remember, uh, like I've never felt before, the peace of God overwhelming me. Not in some, some uh, supernatural type uh, experiential way where we, we have this, this warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but all of a sudden all the anxiety, the worry, the, the, the fear that I had regarding my wife and regarding our child, it was gone. And God gave me such a peace. And folks, the peace of God can be had in, tri- in trials and suffering. But it comes from Him. It's not something that we can muster. It's not something that we can kind of uh, finagle and try to work together. It's, it's something that God bestows upon us. Habakkuk returned. He looked back and he remembered all of the goodness of God. And no doubt, looking back and looking forward, he said, God, I know you've been working. I know you are working. And you will work out your purpose and plan. And I'm, I'm going to trust you. He remembered the power in the works of God. Number three, Habakkuk feared and he quietly waited. Verse number 16. There, there is a, such a, a, a change in verse 16, a dichotomy, so to speak. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. The, the next several phrases gives, give us kind of a, a physiological response to fear. He says, I heard my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered, decay entered into my bones, and in my place I tremble. There's four things that he describes uh, happening in him when he heard the word that God had given to him. He says, first of all, my inward parts trembled. Uh, how many of you run into a situation scared to death and you feel your heart kind of pounding out of your chest? Your whole body's shaking. You're fearful. This is what Habakkuk was experiencing. His inward parts trembled, his lips were quivering, fearful for what were to come. Decay entered into his bones. Uh, People describe in the the medical field a a feeling of impending doom. Um, They told us in nursing school, if somebody ever tells you and looks at you and they say, I think I'm going to die, you need to pay attention. That feeling that that you can't seem to even put your finger on it or describe, uh, but decay, he, he describes it as decay entering into his bones, and he was trembling in his place. He was fearful, almost scared to death over what was going to happen. But notice he feared, and then the second part of this verse shows us a totally different side of Habakkuk. He says, notice this, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Somebody that is fearful and trembling and worried and and scared to death is not often someone that can sit and wait quietly. Someone that is fearful is someone that's pacing back and forth and wringing their hands and sweating and just what's going to happen and just uncertain and, and their mind is racing, their heart is, is uh, beating faster than it ever has before. But this is contrasted with the picture of Habakkuk saying, I will quietly wait. So, first of all, we see the fear that he had and Folks, if we were to fear anything in this world, we were to fear God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are to fear the, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The book of Luke tells us that. 
He says, don't fear the people that can just destroy your body. And after that's done, there's nothing that they can do to you. But fear him who, after he has destroyed the body, can also destroy the soul. We're to fear the Lord. But notice, because of his fear of God, I believe the rest that he had can be directly attributed to his fear of the Lord. He says, I can quietly wait. I ran across this quote while I was studying, and I, I thought it was too good to pass up. Um, John Calvin said these words. He says, We indeed know that the more hardened the wicked become against God, the more grievous ruin they ever procure for themselves. But there is no way of obtaining rest except for a time we tremble within ourselves. That is, except God's judgment awakens us, yea, and reduces us almost to nothing. Whosoever therefore securely slumbers will be confounded in the day of affliction. But he who in time anticipates the wrath of God and is touched with fear as soon as he hears that God the judge is at hand provides for himself the most secure rest in the day of affliction. Folks, thinking about the judgment and the justice of Almighty God, we can rest knowing, first of all, that we are not simply in Adam. We are in him. And that God has already satisfied his wrath on our behalf. But notice also he waited. What did, what did Habakkuk wait for? There seems to be a, some translational ambiguity when it comes to the 16th verse. The, uh, the NASB puts it this way, Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. The ESV says it differently, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. One seemingly waiting for the invaders to arise and to come up, and the other seemingly waiting for the judgment of God to come upon those who came and invaded. I think in, in both scenarios, we find a truth that we can apply. One, that we, we need to quietly wait and rest, knowing that God is sovereign over our circumstances. Habakkuk could quietly wait in the presence of God for the judgment that was to come because he knew who the judge was. He knew that God was in control of the judgment that would come. He knew that Babylon and the Chaldeans could proceed no further than God allowed them to do in judging his people. On the flip side, we could also see that Habakkuk could wait and know that one day those who, who oppressed and who judged and who killed, who starved the people of Judah would one day come under the judgment of God. And folks, today we can rest in our circumstances knowing in either situation, however you, the translation, however you translate it, we can know that God is sovereign over our suffering. God is in control. And God will work out His purpose and His plan in our life. So he feared God and he quietly waited. Notice the last thing, and uh, we'll try to close very briefly with this. Um, Habakkuk rejoiced. Say, how can you rejoice when you're hearing of the destruction of your people? How? Notice verse 17. He says, uh, he kind of assumes uh, part of what will happen as a result of this judgment that would come upon the, the battle, the wars that would come. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Figs were a source of uh, a lot of their food. We, we read in the Bible of about cakes of figs how that they use the, the, the fruit from the fig tree to sustain them. Uh, there would be no fruit on the vines. Uh, though the yield of the olive should fail, 
and the fields produce no food. As a result, the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. He says, we are going to be depleted of all of our human resources. All of the, the, the creaturely comforts of this life, they're going to be gone. We're going to have nothing. He says, even in the midst of that, I'm going to rejoice. We see the circumstances of his joy. Famine, starvation, very common in times of war. A, a, a company, an a army would come against a city and they would besiege it so that you couldn't go out, you couldn't come in, you couldn't go out into your fields and glean, you couldn't sow. You, all of the things that would come along with getting a great harvest, you couldn't do those things. In fact, we see Gideon, when he was chosen, where was he? He was hiding, uh, threshing wheat, hiding from the Midianites. The thing that is, is very interesting to note here in verse 17 is that the circumstances that surround us in our life should not and cannot determine the amount of joy that we have. There's a vast difference between being happy and being joyful. My, my uncle was a, a missionary in France, and he was witnessing to somebody on the street one day, and the man pulled out his wallet, and he said, you see this? He said, when this is full, I'm happy. And when it's empty, I'm sad. Folks, happiness can be derived from our circumstances, but true joy is found in Christ apart from our circumstances. In the most depressing uh, times of doubt and despair in our lives and suffering and trials and temptations, we can look at all those things and say, God, I'm still going to rejoice in you because you're in control. You are sovereign over all of these things. So we see the circumstances. He says, yet I will rejoice. In spite of all these things, I will rejoice. I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in this. Two things he can rejoice in. Number one, rejoice in the God of his salvation. Even before the judgment had ever even come into his life, even before the Chaldeans ever rose up to judge the people of God, Habakkuk looks forward and says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. God is going to deliver us. He will deliver. Secondly, he rejoiced because of the strength that God provides in the suffering. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Folks, when you have no strength of your own, God is your strength. He is to be our only source of strength, our only hope. And notice it says, he has made my feet like hind's feet, or like the feet of the deer, and he makes me walk upon my high places. Folks, in trials and suffering, there is power to rise above the circumstances. But that's only found in Jesus. That's only found in the God of our strength, the God, our deliverer. So Habakkuk looks and he prays. He remembers the goodness of God. He sits quietly before the Lord and he fears and he rejoices. So let's very briefly make a few points of application to our lives. Number one, God will always preserve his people in suffering. Always. Psalm 121, lift up your eyes into the hills. From once cometh my help, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer my foot to be moved. Folks, God will always preserve his people in times of suffering and trial. 
I, I came across this quote, and it says, if, if God sees it good to strike with one hand, he will support with the other. If God sees it good to strike with one hand, he will support with the other. The one thing we can be sure of in times of our trials is that God will preserve his people. We will not uh, finally and uh, without remedy be cast aside and destroyed. God will preserve us. Uh, the second thing that we, I think we've already touched on a little bit, true joy is found in God, not in our circumstances. In times where we have nothing and we see nothing, He is our all. We have hope and joy that's found in Christ. Uh, thirdly, suffering in this life is always for the glory of God and for our benefit. You say, I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this circumstance. Isn't that always the case? You know, I I recognize theoretically and hypothetically speaking that God will eventually bring about good in my life, but I have no idea how it's going to happen in this situation. Folks, in those times, we can be assured through the promises of God that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God always works it for our good. Thomas Watson said this, he said, God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more distinctly upon us. Even in that passage, Romans 8, 28, a lot of times we stop at verse 28 and we don't continue to verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. Folks, that is the purpose that God is working through trials, is to conform us to Christ. And lastly, by way of application, I, I want us to recognize this, and we've already drawn attention to it in Sunday school and also in this service as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, talks about Christ as our high priest. When you think in the, in the Word of God of the, the one who suffered most greatly, we often don't think specifically of Jesus Christ. We think of His suffering as a, a very short suffering. And many people would look at Job and say Job was the man who suffered above all in the Bible. Uh, but, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate Job. Job suffered and endured those trials from no evil or sin of his own. It was, it was the testing and the proving of God. But Jesus Christ suffered all of those things, having done nothing amiss, having lived a sinless, perfect life. And in addition to that, he endured all points of temptation like we do. And that's what the the writer of Hebrews is drawing attention to. We have a sympathetic high priest. So therefore, because we have a high priest that can understand, that knows the feelings of our infirmities, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. You can come before Christ and, and cast your care upon him, as Peter says, knowing that he has endured those things and that he cares for you. How do you respond to suffering today? Maybe you respond like Habakkuk did at first. God, what are you doing? I don't understand how you can do this, God. But I think if we were to, to examine our lives, to, to, to confirm what we know to be true about God in our heart, that we would have to react like he did in the second part in chapter 3. He prayed, he rejoiced, he recalled the goodness of God, and he feared and quietly waited for God. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, we, we know that there is nothing, nothing good in us 
Lord, nothing good that we can merit any grace or mercy at your hand. But Lord, we know that you are a merciful God. Lord, even in times of judgment and trial and suffering, you're merciful. Lord, we don't understand your ways. We can't understand all of your thoughts and your purposes, but God, I pray that we would trust you, as did Habakkuk, 